This is the At 530 on Main podcast. I'm Sean Collins. And I'm Mike Davis. And we're here to discuss the convergence of digital and physical experiences in today's world. With Extend Group as an expert in designing online experiences and VPS Architecture, an expert on creating physical experiences, you will hear unique discussions on technology, theory, and more that merges our separate areas of expertise into one podcast experience. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoy today's At 530 on Main podcast episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to At 530 on Main. Uh, we are in the Extension Studio today with David Myers, Mike Davis, and Sean Collins. Uh, our guest today is a native of Henderson, Kentucky, Mr. David Myers. Dave is a professor of interaction design and game development at Savannah College of Art and Design. He's the owner of Net Temple, where he leads the overall creative vision technical direction, UX strategy, interaction design execution for all the projects involving skills and project management, vendor relations, client relations, and budget administration. He also collaborates with his clients and business leaders and teams to champion the creative process. He oversees market research activities to explore new interaction models and potential design approaches for all platforms. Dave is the founder of a uh, music platform called Music Packs, which is an online aggregation platform for compiling your favorite music and entertainment tracks. Its mission is to have the users and fans take the lead in supporting their favorite artist. Dave received his MFA from Syracuse University and his illustration certificate from Ringling College of Art and Design. He's an award-winning painter photographer, illustrator, and filmmaker, but most importantly, Dave is a, a great guy. He's a father. He's a husband. He's a friend and a mentor to many. Welcome Thank to At 530 on Main. Thank you. It's great to be here. Hopefully, I can add to that uh, game developer in the near future. <laughs> yes. Yes, we want game developer there. We'll <laughs> talk a little bit about that. Dave is uh, currently uh, looking at launching a, uh, a new game out on the uh, mobile in the mobile world. So, um, Mike, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. I'm going to take a nap after that introduction. Yeah. That's uh, quite a, that wears <laughs> me out just reading about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe maybe we should add, too, that uh, in terms of my connection to Evansville yeah. in education, I've taught at Ivy Tech. Ivy Tech. University of Southern Indiana. Okay. Uh, so I have a lot of former students in the area, and uh, they're doing really well, and it's always come, good to come back, see them, see how they're doing. Of course, I follow them on LinkedIn most of the time. and Yeah. It's always kind of good to see them and their successes. Well, the, the great thing about it is I said the, that last bullet point is Dave is a, uh, a friend and a mentor. And uh, I wouldn't be sitting in this chair today if it wasn't for Mr. David Myers. He's, uh, he's the guy that uh, introduced me to what uh, design was, what the, the design world looked like. Um, how to accomplish it, how to roll your uh, sleeves up and get at it, not, not just right. think about it. You got to know how to do it. And uh, he gave me my first opportunity as an intern at Exit 7 way That's back right. in the day. Uh, I still talk a little bit about the uh, Ryman Auditorium and Grand Ole Opry and all those things. I mean, Dave has been mentioned in articles about being the godfather of digital in the uh, Midwest. Yeah, so. I think 
because obviously my connection to Evansville and the number of students and the places I've taught, but uh, it's funny you mentioned those times. I guess it was at USI, right? Yes. And, uh, but anyway, it was really that was an amazing time because that's when the internet sort of exploded. Yes. So uh, we've kind of come full circle, but uh, it's always kind of good to look back at those times. A lot of energy. Yeah. A lot of work. Everybody had work, so uh, yeah. But it's it's interesting to, to see how the industry has evolved in the last decade or so. Well, we uh, we had a little uh, pregame before over coffee mm-hmm. down at the the local shop, and uh, one of the things that uh, we talked about is really you're from, as I said in your introduction, you're from uh, Henderson, correct? And you know, for you know a, a town. You know, a, what, you know, some would consider a sleepy little river right, town right. In, 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 what is that, northwestern Kentucky? Is right. that right? Yeah. Northwestern Kentucky, how much innovation and how many creative minds have really come out of that? Give us some, some background of what Henderson looks like, some of those key players in innovation, and maybe some insight on, on how you believe Henderson has really uh, set the, the standard for that. Yeah, it's, it's interesting when you think about Henderson being, I don't know, 30,000 max population, right? The amount of creative people who's who've had successes out of there. And I'd mentioned to you, um, I teach at SCAD, of course, and um, SCAD is really great about hyping the school and bringing, it, bringing in big names and showcasing them on their monitors and they sort of uh, give testimonials to SCAD with what SCAD's doing in the different industries. And in one of the uh, lobbies, I was standing there, and I noticed someone pop up on the monitor that I knew from high school. And I'm like, who is that? And it was a girl that I'd gone to high school with. Her name is Ann Crabtree, and she's, I guess, the lead designer for a lot of films and television, but she's best known for uh, the lead fashion designer for Handmaid's Tale. So she's received a lot of press, and there's, there's been, uh, I think she has a book out, uh, but she's quite well known in that industry. Um, and then we have another gentleman. This may have been, Mike, what you were referring to earlier, now that I think about it. His name was Jeff Hale, and he was a one of the visionaries and producers behind the Blair Witch Project that happened you know, a couple decades ago that really changed that whole kind of, it, was, it, it sort of created a whole new genre in filmmaking with yeah. that sort of first-person point of view. And then, again, when I think about it, there's been people uh, who's gone on that's done great with photography, and they've won national and global awards. Uh, we've got people uh, who are really successful musicians that's played with big country names and uh, uh, different types of uh, entertainers and that level. So it's just kind of interesting that Henderson, being so small, has produced sort of a sort of an odd ratio of successful people in the arts. But. Yeah, even on something that uh, we may even take for granted every day, uh, the blue jean, you know, your jeans. Right, right, right. I'd mentioned earlier that uh, there used to be a company in Henderson called Sites Denim, and I believe it was owned by a gentleman named Dale Sites, who's a longtime Henderson resident. And his son is, if I, if, if I have the title correct, he's the lead uh, innovation the lead of innovation at Levi's, I believe, in Northern California. So, you know, he came out of that whole industry when uh, they had Sites Denim in Henderson and they yeah. did different types of uh, gene patterns and, uh, I guess, distressed uh, experimentation. But he's moved on to do that, which is quite uh, a nice title also. Yeah. What spurs that? 
What what is what well, does Henderson have the sauce? What is it? Well, I think it's the the high school education, the art program. They've always put an emphasis on the arts in Henderson, and they do have a separate wing, which is the School of Fine Arts. Uh, uh, when I was there uh, years ago, they actually had a, a federal grant, and it was called Gifted and Talented in the Visual and Performing Arts. And so, what they did, they actually, I think, at that time in the in the early '80s. Henderson was a really big school because they had just merged the county and city. So I think our freshman class had like 1,200 people or something to that effect. But what this uh, grant program did was they actually screened uh, all the students through interviews and just portfolio reviews. It was singing, dancing, visual arts, music. And uh, at least for me as an individual, I got to spend – a half to three quarters of my day focused on visual arts. So that's rare at a high school yeah. level, unless you're at a, again, a school that's for visual arts or performing arts. So, and then the other thing that's really kind of critical, I believe, is that when I was there decades ago, I had the same art teacher and he taught, I believe, in the school system somewhere along the lines of 30 years before he retired. And what's interesting is his son took over his position when he retired. So uh, Henderson has sort of a legacy of probably 50 years of emphasis with the arts. And so they've really pushed it heavy. Yeah. Yep. So at 530 on Main podcast, it's a discussion of, you know, the physical world of architecture, Mike being a, an architect with VPS Architecture and uh, myself being the founder of Extend Group and Digital Experiences. So we try to talk a little bit about how those two worlds today are, are one in, in both uh, reality and whether it be augmented reality or virtual reality or whatever it is. When we walk into a space, how digital is really impacting the physical experience right. and how the digital is also capturing what's happening in the phys- physical space and how we um, how we interpret that for future generations. So uh, we do have some questions, and, and really when we we start this at 530 on Main podcast, the, the first question we always ask is, you know, what does the word experience mean to you, Dave? Mm, that's loaded. <laughs> uh, well, it is, it is because I think depending on where you're coming from, it could mean very different things. But to me, initially, probably primarily – as an interactive designer, it deals with a user's experience, which is kind of connected to us emotionally. Um, but I, I can tell you from my experience at SCAD, this is evolving all the time. And again, whether you're talking about an industrial designer or an architect, they're all c- concentrated on experience, but it's very different, right? But I think in the end, it comes down to how it sort of connects with me on a sort of a, I would say, a non-tangible level to something more uh, intrinsic and uh, emotional. So in in our particular case, we're really expanding our UX department, and it has a lot to do with psychology. Mm -hmm. There's a whole lot of psychology involved. And it's really interesting, you know, because I've worked at several agencies here in Evansville over the decades, and I always tell my students it's, it's so different now, you know, because when when the process basically was uh, years ago, and it was this way across the board. I worked at corporate environment 
medium-sized studio, right? Small studios, yeah. own business. But you'd meet with a client, and they would tell you basically what their problems were, what the design challenge was, or what their needs were. And you'd go back, and you and your team, whether it be a creative director, art director, writer, whatever, would uh, put together several ideas. And then you would go back, and you'd meet with the client, and they would sort of provide you a little bit of feedback and focus. And you may go back, and they may pick one idea and give you a couple of uh uh, alterations to it, and you would refine that, and you would come back, and that was the process until you pretty much got it right. Well, the big problem is, at least today, is there's one person we have not involved in this process, yes. and that's the user. Yeah. And so nowadays, it's really kind of the opposite. We we start with getting users involved and trying to understand who they are. And this is a very complicated question because you're talking about uh, – not only just demographics, right, but then cult- cultural uh, type of factors as well. Right. Uh, it could be different parts of the country. It could be different parts of the world. It could be different uh, understandings of how they perceive certain things, whether it's something as simple as a color. You know, some people perceive red a certain way in China, and some people perce- perceive it different in the West. So the, the difference now is, and I'm not really sure – how this has been adopted, you know, in the Midwest. I, I'm not really not sure that's something we can talk yeah. about, but it really starts with the user. And in our in our particular design thinking process, uh, we don't put a pencil to paper until we go through an extensive sort of research stage and really kind of empathize with who will be using this product or this space or this experience, right? And... It's probably almost. Uh, it's probably important also to point out that experience can be many things. It could be my experience with a mobile app. It can be my experience with a service, or it can be my experience in an environment. Right. And as you guys said, right, that could be since virtual reality has exploded, that could be a virtual space or a physical space. And it's all crossing over. And oh yeah. For us, it's the same same exact thing. Mm-hmm. The old school way of doing things, as you just. I call it just doing something. Okay, mm-hmm. that's a design. Well, what does this design have? How's that going to affect the patient walking in? Mm-hmm. How's that going to look? When What do those colors mean to the space? And mm-hmm. if you're not understanding all that, and how's it tie into the overall design, a holistic right. concept? Right. Yeah, and the other thing I think that's really important that's at least overlooked a lot is the experience actually begins before you engage. So let's say, for example, I need to go to a grocery store and I'm going to go to Whole Foods. Well, immediately before I even get to that physical location, there's something inside of my head that's given me some type of perception of what Whole Foods is. Right. Is it like Walmart? Is it like Schnucks? I mean, there's a sort of a uh, an image in my head of what it's like. So there's sort of a sort of a pre-engagement part of user experience. And then when you get there, of course, you have the engagement. So what's my experience like as I shop in Whole Foods and interact with their uh, uh, cashiers and or uh, employees? And then, of course, there's the post experience. What What's my takeaway? Right. Did, I, did, did it fulfill what I went there for? Did I experience frustration or confusion? Am I happy? Did it go well? So there's sort of three stages that we always sort of need to concern, concern ourselves with in terms of at least user experience. So what do you find in 
in your client experience, like if, if you have a client come in to whether it be Net Temple or somebody comes into Savannah College of Art and Design and they're saying, I want to go through a UI, you know, project with you and we want to do research validation or, you know, before the client would come and say, I need a logo or I need this physical space design or whatever that is. And they physically expect that within, you know, maybe a week, maybe two, you're going to turn around and you're going to hand them an estimate for a project. Of which that would be design services, would be programming or, you know, uh, sketches, whatever the statement of work says, and then they're going to initiate said project. Mm -hmm. So that is, you know, traditionally when you talked about that waterfall, like, okay, Mm -hmm. so we sit in a room with the client. Now there's this whole education side that you have to take to your, your client or your customer and say, hey, we don't need to just go like right here. You know, we need, we don't need to just go to, okay, I'm going to design your logo and you're going to get 22 comps. And then, you know, of those two, you get to pick out three of which we have three rounds of revisions. And then after that, the team's going to go back and then we're going to create your, 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 your brand standards. And we're going to do the, like, how do you educate the cons- your, your consumer in the conversation that we need to actually go out and physically do uh, research both quantitative and qualitative to your end consumer so this project is right. And guess what? That's not going to be a $500 project. Well, right. Because right. I, I started laughing because I think of HGTV mm-hmm. and sometimes there's this de-education, I'll call it, because they're like, what do you mean? You just push a button and the model pops up and look what they did on Jen. I'm like, that's like six months of work and design discussions and all. And, and sometimes they don't get it. And they're like, yeah, they're like. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think that's the toughest part, uh, especially if you're coming from a sort of a design process where it wasn't included or wasn't required. And now you're trying to justify the fact that we need X amount of hours to do you know, ethnography, and we need to follow one of your employees around the office for two days. Or, yeah, uh, it's it's tough because then that equates to dollars and and a inflated uh, estimate potentially. But I think in terms of how I educate them, uh, I, I do. I literally buy them books, and I'll say, "Here, you probably should need to read this. It's got some good uh, business advice that a lot of innovative companies are employing, and it may uh, discuss." Uh, the value of user experience and user testing and the whole, what you refer to is this iterative process. We're trying to refine a product or a service to be sort of an optimal experience for someone. And I think, I think the, the really, the return on an investment comes in things like retention or um, that's the thing, whether we're talking about company culture with HR and employees or even selling products I know that we recently did a project that dealt with um, uh, company culture, and they said their one of their number one issues was just re- retaining quality people because there's such a demand for quality people right now. If you if you can't keep your employees happy, they will look elsewhere. And the interesting thing about this is, it's not always about necessarily their salary. There's other factors that go into uh, an employee's experience at the workplace that that, that makes them feel valued. So uh, obviously, uh, ex- extrinsic things like salary and bonuses are important, but you've got to have more if you want someone to 
be committed and stay with you and do what they should be doing rather than uh, sort of forced into doing things. So it's it's kind of a tough thing, but it's this it's this kind of um, research and evaluation and testing and validation that uncovers these small little nuggets that you can uh, kind of put a focus on to keep these things. Yeah. Do you see those challenges today? Oh yeah. Where you're at? Same thing. Same, same challenges when I do a lot of healthcare work. So a lot of the research that has been done over the years to show how a patient gets better with a room in their patient room that no one, that was unheard of to like the seventies, I think. And then they realized now it's all light. So someone gets in a wreck at two in the morning, their circadian rhythms, everything's out of whack because they go into surgery. They're there for till they wake up. It's one o'clock in the afternoon. And so now you can take light therapy and get them back on track faster and they heal faster. And so we see a lot of that, but the, the get people to do the research is really yeah, hard. It's, it's really tough. tough. They like it, but they don't. Yeah. Uh, you know, what I've noticed though, is if we kind of turn back the clock a little bit and we go back 10 years, uh, UX in terms of digital interactive media has sort of exploded. If you go to any job board right now and you search for UX yeah. designer, you'll see a lot of postings, probably more so than any other position except maybe a programmer or a developer, though you just can't get enough good programmers or high-end developers. But um, uh, if we go back about 10 years, a lot of medium to small-sized companies, uh, I would say, did not place a value on it. But you can see it slowly sort of creeping in. Uh, obviously, the West and East Coasts and uh, Silicon Valley, they all saw the value in it two decades ago, if not more. And, um, and again, I think when you're talking about moving the needle on an enterprise company, we're talking everything from small to large. But when you're talking about moving the needle 1%, you know, imagine what 1% means to Coca-Cola. Right. Right. Yeah. Or, um, uh, but, but anyway, again, I think for small and medium-sized companies, it's so tough to survive and thrive out there that you you have to do whatever you can do to sort of have that sort of advantage. And really being in touch with who your users are and providing sort of fulfilling uh, user experience is really, I believe, very key. So within the industry, uh, you know, I went through and, and talked about your uh, – your background as, you know, illustrator, as a painter, as, you know, you've done a lot uh, throughout your career uh, with hands-on. So you're taking the ideas and you're physically putting those, you know, to work for you as, as you learn software, as you, you know, learn new tools, whether it be different styles of pencils, different styles of brushes in your painting, you know, different photography lenses and lighting uh, treatments and all those things. So how has that shaped where you are today in the in your field of UI and UX being able to be hands-on with the product knowing it and how is how has that created an experience for you that may differentiate you from the the ones that have went out and read the one like how has being hands-on helped yeah. you in the experience well uh, i think it's sort of the position you take for example 
uh, I was discussing with Mike earlier at some of the UX conventions I've I've been at. Some UX um, sort of evangelists take a position that you do not need to know how to code. You do not need to know how to do graphic design or visual design. You do not need to know typography because our focus is on the user experience and sort of fulfilling those users' needs. And I don't necessarily disagree with that, but that's not my personal sort of position. My personal position is that any skill you can obtain can benefit you in some somewhere along that design thinking process, whether you're in the early stages of research and empathizing or in the middle stages of, you know, con- conceiving ideas and ideating and brainstorming, or even in the developing stage. Now, it's probably highly unlikely that you can be a, a sort of an expert in all of those areas. Uh, because, again, I, I always joke with my students that I consider myself a pretty good programmer, but I've worked with really good programmers, and I, I am not them. So... Um, and I, I don't think I want to be them or even have the capability to because it takes so much time and investment and commitment. But I do see personally a value in sort of being fundamentally sound in a lot of these what I would call uh, basic areas. That's not, again, to say that you have to be extremely proficient. But I think the, fa- the fact that I know programming to a certain degree gives me credence with a high-level programming team. And I'm not just someone passing off an idea saying, just do this. Or when they, they're having a particular challenge about um, creating one of the features, or uh, then I can sort of, again, empathize with them and maybe make suggestions. I may not necessarily be able to you know, do it all the way through, but I think that collaboration uh, sort of, uh, there's a little respect that goes back and forth. So... And uh, real quickly, uh, we were talking earlier, Mike and I, about when we talk about fundamentals, uh, I can say critically that too many students depend on the computer. Yeah. You know, there's the sketching, sketching is a lost art. And as I said earlier, sketching is not about drawing. It's about getting um, what's in your head down onto a piece of paper. It could be words. It could be lines. It could be, it could be a drawing. But the drawing is the, the last and least of it, right? It's what am I thinking? How can I best illustrate that on a piece of paper? And in, in most cases, certainly in uh, interactive design, it can be done with boxes and lines just to show flow and sort of process. And you can lay out sort of a UI relatively quickly. But uh, if there's one sort of point of emphasis that I would give for people wanting to enter this field, it would be embrace hand sketching and uh, don't let it go. Oh yeah, yeah. Same way in our field, and I try. We work with that all the mm-hmm. time. And I, I was always a sketcher, but I learned that from a Canadian professor that I had in architecture school. And one time, I couldn't find a pen. He was like, "Sketch out your idea," and I'm like, "Well, I couldn't find a pen." And he pulls a pen out of his pocket. Hands it to me. He says, no self-respecting architect is without a pen. And I was like, ah. so since then, I always have a pen ever since then. Because, yeah, you're like sitting there. I got to get this idea out. Like, how do you do that? Yeah, we, we talked about napkins earlier, too. Napkin sketches. some of the greatest yep. ideas happened over lunch yeah. on a napkin. So. If you look at, yeah, the greatest yeah. architects, yeah. I'm sure, in your field, too. Mm-hmm. But their buildings look exactly like that napkin sketch that they did in two <laughs> seconds. And then you're like, oh. Well, and that – all of that impacts your relationship 
in your experience with your client, right? Because that that's an, as as Dave said earlier, like depending on the computer to like you know I'm go- maybe you uh, working with your Revit you know team just booming like and handing it to them without physically going through the experience, sketching that out, saying if and. And we do it here. Everything has glass everywhere or it has plexiglass whiteboard. So we walk through and I don't know that there's a meeting that you've been in with me where I don't immediately just go to the whiteboard. And whether it be a process diagram or, you know, a checklist of things or uh, wireframing a quick experience on what that means, that experience with the client is invaluable. And we're we're always about you want to lead the project. You want to be a leader on a project. You got to be a problem solver. You're not just an architect. And so the people that just want to take off and go 100 miles an hour and you're like, wait, come back. Mm-hmm. What? How is this client different than that client? How's What are they looking for? What do they want? Like, what's their experience going to be? Yeah. And I think that's a key too. just problem solving. I think that's really our task, right, as designers to solve problems. But another thing I'll say about some of these other areas, we talked about research and empathizing, uh, prototyping, right? Sketching, prototyping, testing, programming. Uh, This is another sort of position that I take, and and you can buy into this or not. That's the thing I tell my students, that you you have to sort of just buy into this for 10 weeks. We we do 10-week quarters. And after those 10 weeks, you can walk away and think however you want. But I, I tell them that programming is such an art of problem solving, it, and, and, it, and I emphasize the word art, and not in the terms of drawing or painting, but in terms of how to creatively solve a problem in the most efficient and uh, simple way. Because the, the beauty of programming is you can have a programmer. And, well, first of all, the things that need to be programmed, can, there's always multiple ways to program the same thing, right? So the, the beauty is when you can take someone who it takes 150 lines to program a particular event or feature, and they can get it down to five lines. Yeah. Now, that is a work of art. That's, uh, and that's problem solving, and it's thinking. It's, uh, and, and so I really push that each of these phases, you can be taught how to do them sort of as a best practice or process, or you can dig deeper, right, and find out how to do it better than what's currently accepted. And that's where I think the art and innovation uh, comes into play. So whether you're an architecture firm or a UI, UX design team, or, you know, you're a design house, um, who's responsible for the, the philosophies internally of design thinking? Is it the team on their own? Does every player uh, on the team need to have, you know, the discipline themselves to go back and spend X amount of hours, you know, a week on on bettering themselves, or is that the responsibility of the firm or the uh, the leader of the team to make sure that those are you know, those are continuous those those individuals on the team are continuously being educated because design thinking in itself is is right now still an exploding topic on what that philosophy is. So, how does whether you're an architect or a design house or a programming house, how do they, how do you see the, the relationship of that training experience for not only learning like how to be a better PHP programmer or C, you know, plus plus or um, how to be a better Revit 
designer. At the same time, you're trying to learn like design thinking mm-hmm. terminology and being able to interact with the client in a because some programmers right. They, they don't want that interaction mm-hmm. with the client. But within this, this model, you are always with your client. You're mm-hmm. always with the end consumer, and all of that's mashed together. So who's responsible internally for, for creating that culture? Is it the individuals? Is it the team? Is it ownership? Or is it all the above? Uh, well, I would say it would be the, the upper echelon. That's the vision and culture of the, the team, right, or the company. But... Ultimately, it's going to trickle down to um, obviously the owners have to sort of buy into that, and that's the position they take. But the whoever that person is, whether it's a creative director or team lead, they have to sort of disseminate those values down um, to the different people on the team. And again, it's a choice. It's almost you know, there's different cultures and philosophies and religions, and a lot of people align themselves to the ones that they feel most comfortable with and it's no different here you there are some people who are stubborn and they've done they've been programming for 30 years and this is the way they do it right and then there's uh people who are a little bit more open-minded and the thing that i've kind of discovered is no matter how much experience you have you should always be seeking better and more innovative and more efficient means, whatever that means, whether it's a programming process. I mean, the the thing I I tell my students again is we look at something, we we can look at some of the leaders in the industry, like let's say Amazon or Facebook or Google. And I don't know what they're going to be in the future, but one thing I can guarantee is they're not going to be what they are today. Right. Right. So, and, and it's up to them for the most part, these students who are in their 20s, who will be in their 30s and 40s, they're the ones that are going to make these changes. I mean, all we have to do is look back, look back 10 or 20 years and see how things have sort of progressed. So the real challenge is to sort of, I think, instill a mindset and culture of innovation and not accepting the way things are as a status quo, but how can we always make it better? And maybe there's some cases where we can't, right? But, uh, but, I think that, that that mindset has to be there. So again, to kind of wrap that is yeah. the vision has to come from the company, but then the people who are leading the charge, whether it be creative directors or team leads or project managers, have to sort of kind of inspire their team to sort of, it's almost like a coach to me. You yeah. have to m- make them believe they can do more or better than even they think they're capable of doing. Yeah, and I th- I think part of that is being honest with yourself. Mm-hmm. If you're a task-oriented person and that's where you thrive, you don't want to be in this mm-hmm. world where you constantly have to adapt and think and empathize with the client and understand what they want because that client's going to be different than that client, mm-hmm. right? They're not all going to yeah. be the same. And I think there are people on the team that won't necessarily have FaceTime with the client. I mean, I don't know. Maybe I could see some developers that may or may not, but – there should be probably a liaison or point person on that team that communicates this stuff to them. Yeah. All right, Mike. I went <laughs> way down in a rabbit hole. None of that, you know, it's always good conversation. I do get off on uh, on tangents. Bring us bring us back in a little bit here. Well, do we have a, let's see, where we're, uh, here's one of my questions that kind of pops into my head as I always think about uh, as an architect or even like, but uh, the experience. So, what's a product 
um, you use every day that you think is really well designed? Well, I've got an easy out. <laughs> I think the most obvious one is the the phone, right? The yeah. phone is just. And, and here, here's oh, another. Say pen. Well, I, <laughs> yeah. I don't disagree with that. I don't disagree with that. But the pen resulted in a phone. <laughs> the development, yeah. what happened with the pen and paper, ended up as a phone. The reason I say that, I'll, I'll tell you. Obviously, the pen and paper is sort of the the spark that I guess all great innovations are going to come from. But the the reason I turned to the phone, and again, that's an easy out. I think most laymen would say, oh, it's obviously the smartphone with all it can do. But again, I think it's a, sort of your frame of reference. When I talk to my students about sort of the empowerment that the phone gives them, a lot of times I, I don't think they get it, you know. But I think you almost have to be, you have to look back and understand there was a time when I did not have that kind of power at my fingertips. Well, yeah, you did. It was attached to a cord yeah. at your house. Well, even before that, <laughs> yeah. right? When it was, right. you had to go down to the library. <laughs> yeah. And that was, if you think about it, if you walk into the Evansville Library down here, whatever, two decades ago yeah. or three decades ago, you'd think, man, I have the knowledge of the world at my fingertips. Right. Uh, but just think, how am I going to access that? Right. <laughs> I have to run up and down stairs and look through card catalogs. And yep. it was insane. But to, just to imagine that this phone what it kind of puts at your fingertips in terms of, in terms of knowledge or uh, anything you want to know is there. Anything you want to learn is there. Any kind of fact you want to yeah. research is there. So and that's one of the things where it took away the took away the long discussions in the bar about yeah, that's true. things because you just pull out your phone and go, nope, this one. That's true. <laughs> I was yeah. right. You're right. <laughs> then you're like, now what are we going to yeah, talk yeah. about? Settle so arguments really about quick that forever. <laughs> but. Uh, I don't know. It's just the uh, again, the it's a it's a tool that I think we on the back end should look at more. Not just the phone. I think just access. You could say the internet, the World Wide Web, the the internet that's going to lead to the the Internet of Things and big data and all of these other things. We, we're basically plugged in to anything that we we can create anything we want now, right? And then to plug into data to make that more efficient, knowledgeable, expansive. So. It's just, it's just kind of, uh, uh, to me, it's, it's hard to fathom. And, and again, I think digital natives, it's hard for them to really understand what they have that previous generations just did not have. Well, and how is that shaping, you know, the relationships and the experiences that we have with those digital natives as individuals who, who know what it was like pre-iPhone or pre-Android, like, you know, they, um, you know, my 14-year-old and my 9-year-old are like, boom, like, yeah. <laughs> I got to know now. Like, I can't wait. I can't work through this project. Like, what is it? So how do we as, you know, providers of solutions, you know, creative thinking, really work with the, the next generation who is immediately, you have to have the answers or I'm going to the next thing. So yeah. how, how, do we, yeah. how do we have that? that experience with our, our customers and our teams? Well, I think it goes back full circle to what we talked about earlier, understanding your users and yeah. how they think and what their behavior is. I mean, that they, they where we sort of might appreciate it, they expect it. Yes. And, and they just feel that that's the way it is. And you almost can't disagree with it, right? Because that's all they've ever known. So, But I think uh, just being aware that, you know, again, you've, you've got sort of a – it's really unbelievable how many people 
sleep with their phones or the phones right there beside the phone is like tethered to them almost everywhere they go so you know this has now here yeah yeah yeah. let's go and this has good and bad things right i mean we talk about data and privacy there's there's a lot but um i don't know i think it just needs to be certainly considered and it really depends on the project and the problem you're trying to solve but the fact that you have a connection tethered to individuals uh, the vast majority of individuals is again pretty powerful and compelling. So, yeah. So as we, you you talk about the phone and that experience, and that's kind of a digital. That's a personal experience. What's a personal experience or a, a space, a physical space that uh, kind of makes you emotional when you visit? Yeah. Uh, again, maybe it maybe it's me and my age and my frame of reference, but um, I'll give you two, two very different ones. Okay. Recently, uh, I went to St. Louis and we were doing this project for Clayco. They're building a building. I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but it's called, I think it's called 100 Kingsman High, Kings Highway. Anyway, it's a, it's a very super modern, uh, sort of an apartment building. It's like some kind of sci-fi thing. So if you haven't seen this, Google it. It's really amazing. So anyway, they're in mid-construction on this building. And uh, as part of the project, they wanted to take us to the construction site and just kind of inform us of the product. This was all part of the user experience, right? We wanted to kind of understand what the construction people had to deal with and what their day was like. So they took us to the uh, construction site, and they took us up to the top floor that was built at the time. I think it's like the 30th floor. And uh, there was just something... I don't know if it was emotional, but it was sort of a, just a wonder, you know, it's back to this, the wonder of the phone. It's like, it's like magic. As I looked around this super modern building and what it really took to build, I was just amazed. It's just unbelievable that these people here are like building this thing. It's just, I, I mean, I distilled it down to the most fundamental kind of level of just awe. And I just thought to myself, when, and I've seen architecture renderings of it when it's done, and it's been featured in a lot of, and there's helicopters flying around it all the time, right, taking pictures and progress. But when you see this thing, like any, like, great building, or I think, or architectural marvel, you just have to, like, marvel at it. And it's just from, some, from the person who conceived the idea to the, the, the people or the team that actually uh, engineered and rendered the vision of what the person had to the down to the people with their bare hands building this thing. It's unbelievable. And now the other example I was going to give is this is again me sort of as an individual is um, sometimes it's not necessarily the space itself, but sort of the um, I guess the contents. Like I give you an example: any c- classic museum that I go into when I'm in that space. Again, it's like I've entered sort of a special place of humanity for some reason. When you see these original paintings, name the artists of your choice, right? A Monet or a Van Gogh, and you you can look at that thing from five feet away or as close as they'll let you get, right? And and again, it goes back to the, the just the wonder of some some human hands made that and how that actually affected it dominoed and rippled through the rest of the society since that time. So we could look at paintings or architecture or even digital, you know, um, digital artifacts, the smartphone, the tablet, things that really affect and change sort of the course 
of uh, humanity is pretty powerful. And I know it's kind of I'm getting a little no, goofy there, but yeah. these are real things that you can't as a design at least as a designer. I think you have to be in touch with these things. You just can't uh, you know f- expect them or uh, look over them or gloss over them. These are things when you look back at the history of computers and circuits and uh, chips and the every little incremental step that happened that, that got us to this point they're just they're they're just really amazing they're really amazing so yeah just thinking as of recently attending you know a concert you know over here at mm-hmm. the Ford Center and what an experience of a concert looks like today versus right. what it may have been in the yeah. you know in the 80s yeah. you know you're talking or even the 70s when yeah. it's you know you know, you had the pyrotechnics and you had the lasers and you had, but you know, I'm I'm at one and the whole backdrop is nothing but LED and yeah. instead of you know the lighters, everybody pulls out the their their smartphone and it lights up the entire right. stadium. Yeah. You know, it, it's there. So those those spaces that are are you know they're designed for a singular yeah. thing, but how. Um, how someone is really thinking about how they activate that space all the way through. Right, yeah, they transform it, right? Yeah. But on that same note, one of the trends, I guess, with music and concerts, if you've been to a music festival, music festivals are all about the experience. It's not necessarily about the music. It's about if you go to like a Bonnaroo or a Coachella or whatever these huge festivals are, Burning Man, they're they're really all about the experience. Yeah. And it, the music is just a part of it. It's a big part, right? But it's about the people you meet. It's just about the, the time you have while you're there. Usually it's their multi-day events. Yeah. So uh, it's moved more from sort of a short-term um I guess passive experience where you're the audience and you, like a movie, right? It just you just yeah. project and you listen to just interaction and engagement and activities and just all kinds of crazy stuff that goes on. So yeah, and that yeah. becomes the content. I mean, you're basically yeah. creating the content for the next yeah. show. You're part of the content. Yes. That's right. Yeah. yeah, you're a part of that story. And <laughs> yeah, because isn't that a job now where people just blog summary of oh, the yeah, concert yeah. that did so people that didn't go can read about yeah. it and yeah. get some sense of the experience. Yeah. So when we go through, how, how does your person, you know, Dave, your personal passion um, for finding creative solutions impact our community? Like how does, how does where you're at today, how is it changing community? Well, I think uh, on a personal level anyway, I've sort of made different efforts and launched different initiatives to kind of give back. And um, right now I'm in Savannah, but I lived in Louisville for two years and I started something called the Louisville Center for Design. And its total mission was to basically enter elementary schools and to put on workshops for kids between 10 and 15, right? And it was just to introduce to them computer programming and to make it fun, okay? Because again, I, I personally feel that programming should be taught as a language just like English or French or whatever it is. I really truly believe that because of where we're going in the future. But in those particular cases, um, I received a couple of grants from, I think, Raspberry Pi Foundation and uh, Comcast, and we, we bought like 20 to 30 little mini workstations. We used Raspberry Pi computers. If you don't know what those are, they're little sort of mini credit card sized um, 
CPUs, uh, and then we just would literally take them into the classroom, set them up, and uh, the kids uh, would actually have to put the computers together. So part of the pitch was, you know, you'd, you'll build your own computer, right? Right. So they would put the little kit together. Uh, but really, when you, when you watch these kids who are 10 and 12 do something that sort of seems intimidating— if you say, hey, we're going to teach you how to do computer programming and you'll build your own computer, a lot of adults at that point would say, I don't know, I'm, I'm, that's not for me. But uh, when you see kids sort of embrace it, it's, it's really interesting. And all we're really trying to do at that point is just plant seeds to see if they you know, can reflect back at some point in time in the future and see that as a, an awesome experience. And they've got sort of some kind of pride or validation out of what they did and maybe it could lead them into sort of that direction. But uh, those kind of things, I uh, continue to do workshops whenever possible. I always go back to the high school, uh, the art classes there, I like to invite alumni back and uh, just talk about what's available out there. Because think about it, if you're taking a high school art class, they're teaching you drawing, uh, what are you going to do with that? I mean, can I make a career out of this? So you have to sort of present this bridge to these really basic things that you're doing, how they can lead to something like a career in uh, interactive design or user experience design or architecture or whatever. You you know, the funny thing about that is you're an architect, but uh, when I was in high school, that's what I wanted to be, was an architect. But uh, when I look back and look at what I do now, I basically do, I'm an information architect. So I take all of this information and data and I categorize it and I present it in a sort of a digital space. It's really kind of interesting. We need to I, I just touch on that really, really <laughs> briefly because this is, this is Mike and I constantly have this, this discussion <laughs> of how the term architect is used because today I, I often will stumble and say I'm a digital architect and creating digital solutions that, you know, that convert to whatever uh, our clients need. And then, you know, you talk about being able to architect that and, and Mike knowing what being an architect, uh, we had uh, Harper guitars in, you know, on one of our previous uh, episodes and he co- considers himself a good Guitar architect, yes. Guitar architect. So, yeah. So, in, in the space of whether it be digital or physical, it seems like this word architect is 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 that term. But it always, for me, it always, people are trying to say, well, we're design thinkers and we're, and we're problem solvers and we're this and that. And they kind of copyright that term because whether people know it or not, what we do, it so connects with everything you guys do, everything you say. How Well, this is our process of doing this, and it's always like, yeah, that's our process too, you know, and that's almost the exact same of how we deal with clients and meet with clients and yeah. the old school way of just, anybody can design a building. Mm-hmm. I say you can go to any architect in town. They will design you a building. But is it going to be your building? Is it going to be what you wanted? Is it going to be on budget? Is it going to – give you this experience that you're looking for. And that's really what you're trying to select with an architect. But so I always feel like people are trying to say it's talk about the process, not so much that they're an architect or not an architect. Yeah. (laughs) That's interesting. I mean, I don't, I don't know where, uh, I guess, information architect, the title came from, but it's one of the older ones in our interactive industry, right? When you think about UX designer or, 
that's relatively new, uh, but information architect, it seems like that's been around forever. So well, and we're getting so close with BIM and all these different processes that we're doing that it is all digital, that you're road mapping out a project right. digitally almost uh, in information mm-hmm. before you even do design mm-hmm. on, in some cases. Mm-hmm. Well, I was just going to say, I know that the people that I've worked with who consider themselves information architects are, they, they wrangle massive amounts of data and they try to categorize it or use taxonomy or something, some type of methods that they can give it to me and I can make sense <laughs> of it, right? Uh, and they a lot of times they'll refer to these as wicked problems. When you think about logistics of something like UPS or FedEx, yeah. I mean, these are such huge problems with so many sort of data points and uh, it's just, it's really tough to conceive um, solutions for those types of huge, huge uh, problems. Before we get into the, the wrap-up questions, I want to go back to that uh, community experience and uh, one, how you've transformed maybe one of your passions of, of the entertainment industry and music and, and what you're doing with music packs and, you know, going back to the mission of it uh, empowering, you know, the fans to help promote. Tell us a little bit about that project. Well, Music Packs is interesting because it's been around forever, right? Um, when I was um, doing full-time, when I was in the industry full-time and had sort of my own studio, uh, we actually focused on entertainment in a lot of the music industry, right? And uh, did some big-name uh, musicians. But at that time, if you if you think about it, this is when... DVD or I'm sorry, CDs were being phased out, right? And MP3s had become sort of the rage. And but the problem, of course, was piracy. So now we're going back a couple of decades, but this is really important because this this shows how this industry evolved, and it's really important, I think, for people to look at whatever industry they're in and see, you know, this could happen to us. It may be have it may have a different face on it. But, okay, so D, uh, CDs kind of phased out, and then MP3s became all the rage. And, of course, Apple dominated the the industry with launching iTunes. And so that was really the go-to place to get your music. It was all MP3s. You had uh, iPods and whatnot. So uh, that lasted for 10 years or so. And that, during that time, you have to think about what was going on. Uh, artists were losing money. I mean, they weren't getting, when you had vinyl and then CDs, artists would get a chunk of that. But when you started selling MP3s, they started selling by singles and not necessarily groups of music, right? And then it got even worse when, of course, people are pirating. And so the artist revenue just started to dry up. And what the recording industry did, they started suing people. They, they, they made it a legal battle. So they would sue entire universities and sue grandfathers and 13-year-olds just to sort of make them the poster children for piracy. But that didn't last long because then it went into streaming. So uh, you get these uh, Apple Music, Spotify, they all launch, and they're even paying less per stream than the MP3s. So the, the, the music industry has really radically changed, and the models for artists getting revenue has drastically changed. They just do not make money selling music anymore. I mean, that's kind of a 
a flat statement, which isn't necessarily true, but that's basically what's happening. So they have to find other ways. Uh, so now they're distributing music on YouTube, Spotify, any way they can just to get these little sort of pennies on the dollar. Um, so when I first started Music Pack, Packs, the intention was let's create a secondary market to where we'll track plays and we'll pay the artists so much per play. But the problem with that was there, w- there weren't any revenue models that supported it. In other words, you would have to show so many ads to generate that kind of money. It just wasn't, wasn't going to happen. And then so it finally evolved to kind of where it's at today to where for the most part, you can go on YouTube and see any video you want. It can be Barry White from the 70s or Post Malone from today. They're all there. There's very few exceptions where some artists want to kind of control it. But for the most part, 99% of the music that you want to hear, it's out there on YouTube. So Music Packs migrated toward a YouTube aggregation platform. So now the way Music Packs works is if you go there, it actually has an API that connects to YouTube. So if you do a search for Post Malone, it will actually filter through all the YouTube videos and, and present to you in our platform all of the post malone videos now the benefit is uh we're we're not really heroes for the artists per se but we're sort of a booster for them in other words if i go directly to youtube and i watch a post malone video he'll get paid again a fraction of a penny or whatever it is now if they go to music packs they'll get that same fraction of the penny so we're not really ripping anybody off we're just sort of a a different and extra channel for them and we'd like to think that ours is sort of a better user experience, right? A little bit more customization. The focus is not on advertising. You don't get video ads. All this is sort of bypassed. So that's where it's kind of landed right now. But it kind of goes back to the when you say experience, um, being old enough, my dad had vinyl mm-hmm. records. And so I've always been one. But the album was designed in a way to give you an experience from the first song to the last. Absolutely. My wife, on the other hand, is like, nope, I just like that song. I don't like the rest. I don't want to hear it. And it's like, but the whole album is, you know, it's an album. I don't know if they do that anymore. But I just remember, yeah, you put on that album and you listen to it. And, and that's the experience. Yeah, and it was the it was the art on the yeah. album. It was and the, the album, album when it opened and, up. Yeah. had stories right. in there even as it evolved the color yeah. of the vinyl and you know the, yeah uh, the addition of that yeah. you know release the b-side yeah. yeah right the b-side oh that was better sometimes but back to what you were saying about uh millennials i'll explain that to my students and they look at me like i'm an alien <laughs> <laughs> like what are you talking about you know they, they just have no they don't see any value in it yeah they, they just have a different mindset and I, again you can't really fault them for that they don't appreciate what we appreciated at that time, and it's just a different mindset. Well, don't you? Uh, part of that is where we're at today, though, because I know, for instance, you know, Melissa, my wife, loves Coldplay. I appreciate and like Coldplay, and they just released this whole album, and it's supposed to be this emotional journey through, you know, the ups and downs of where we're at in society today, and it's a whole story from start to finish. But guess what? I haven't had time. To finish this whole emotional experience, right? Who I, I can't sit down and physically. I mean, we at one point in time would sit down with it, whether it be a cassette tape or a CD, and with our friends and you know over conversation, listen listen to that whole experience. Mm-hmm. Who today 
in, in our society can physically go through an entire Coldplay. Students? <laughs> well, I was going to say, they'll binge to. watch Netflix series. It's another, right? great, it's another great conversation. And, and I had with someone, and they were like, we have the same amount of time. Mm-hmm. But now today, because of the iPhone, because of computers, because of access to all this information, we feel like we have less time. Yeah. Right? We have right. the same amount of time. Days haven't gotten any longer or shorter. Right. They are what they are. And we could still take that time to spend, but we're spending it doing other things. But we feel that like ways. that phone is there and I got to pick that up and I got to, right. I mean, I need to like, we, I need to look at my watches going off because, you know, I was supposed to like, this show is coming on. Like I get my mm-hmm. Apple yeah. TV, like, Hey, you know, Michigan's getting ready to play this game. And you know, Hey, this, vi- this, and now you, yeah. you favorited this. And yeah, I did plug Michigan there for a minute, but <laughs> <laughs> Mike being the, the Notre Dame fan over there. Uh, but yeah, everything is popping up, which is interfering with that experience that experience of what that artist intended to create. And mm-hmm. they're trying to do that through music and, and through tonal experience. And I've noticed a lot of the albums that are out today have a lot of spoken word right in the middle. And we're kind of going back to that, uh, you know, our, our, is that experience of they're trying to educate their listener on what's actually going on today because that educator's probably not watching the news. But it's the boredom. Right. Yeah. The boredom. You used to be in your room and you called all your friends. They're not home. They're doing they're out on vacation or whatever. And you're like, I have nothing else to do. Yeah. Except sit here in my room and listen to this album, you know, or go outside and play. But if it's or yeah. now it's like, eh, you're texting everybody right. or you know where it, everybody's yeah, it's doing. back to that phone being sort of tethered to yeah. you. I even on the way up here, uh, listening to audiobooks. I'd get interrupted every five or ten minutes with a text or yeah. a got beep, and then <laughs> something would appear on my screen. I'd have to sort of wave it off. But we're constantly being sort of interrupted because of that device that we have attached to us. All right. So wrapping up here, Dave, give me a person, product, a brand that has the – that is basically defining what – the design and user experiences today. Who's a champion? Who's doing it right? Oh, it's Individual tough. Well, brand again, product. Again, it's easy to go to the top and pick out the big ones, and uh, um, and even what I do a lot of time is with shortcuts. I I always watch what Apple's doing or what Google's doing, and not that they do everything right, but because they do take chances, right? But it's it's hard to look at something like Google and not sort of, again, be in awe about what they provide you. And again, all from a point of reference, I remember back doing work for you know, a group in town, Animation House and Redline Media, and they were working on a, a search engine called Alta Vista. And this was a big dog competitor to uh, Yahoo!, and they're all just gone. Yeah. <laughs> they're gone. It's not like they've reduced in size and they've lost market share. They're gone. Uh, so, again, I think I, I hesitate to say stuff like, well, the iPhone's a great product or Google. But, I mean, they're leaders for a reason. And, you know, when we have Google come to SCAD and they do quite a lot, they tell us their processes and their philosophies and uh, they they do workshops for the students uh, I just tell them pay really, really close attention to what these people are telling you because they're everybody is everybody wants to be in the position they're in. And again, that's not to say that I really like Google or um, I agree with their philosophies, but uh, you know they do things 
in a, in a process that wasn't done a decade or two ago, and they're really streamlined. I'm trying to think of a little more um, obscure, and nothing really comes to mind. But again, it's easy to look at the big ones, but um, what about, is there any smaller ones that you you can kind of point to, products or services? You know, I, I tell you what, I do like when um, small, innovative um, applications pop up. And then, of course, they're always going to be um, bought out by the bigger companies. Right. Whether and, I, and I'm always looking at things that really make a big change. Even something as simple as like a, an Uber or a Lyft, it totally disrupted the whole taxi uh, industry that we've known for probably a hundred years or what, as long as there's been automobiles. Right. So how does this thing come along? Uh, and I talk to my students about things like, um, this is a, a, probably a good one to end on just to sort of be really in touch and conscious with what's happening. Because as someone looking back, when I, when I see giants like Blockbuster and young people won't know who that is right. or Sears, these were giants, newspapers. Newspapers were the most influential kind of media, if you go back several decades. And they're all barely surviving or they're gone. And it just shows you sort of the change in sort of what digital is uh, bringing and uh, how you just, as a designer anyway, I think you always have to be plugged in to what's happening and see, they, see that Sears will dissolve five or ten years before they do. And I, I even look at it, and, and I think, who was running Sears? Who allowed who allowed that to happen? And I, the only thing I can sort of conclude is someone with an old mindset. They may not even be old, but they've got an old mindset, and this is the way it's been. And by golly, we're Sears. Yeah. And they're pretty much gone. They're so big. Yeah. Wow. Right. Too big to fail. Right. Yeah. So what's on your list? Uh, as we end 2019 and go into 2020, what's on what's on your bucket list? What's the one thing that you want to accomplish and experience, whether it be in a physical space, online, or whatever? What do you want to do, Nick? I got to get this game done. That's yeah, tell me about the game. <laughs> well, I, I teach a lot of gaming students. I'm in the interactive design and game department, so that would be anybody who's interested in user experience or developing interactive media or iPhone apps. Uh, as far as to people who are heavy into gaming, console gaming, whether it be Borderlands or Call of Duty or uh, anything uh, that heavy. So obviously having all these game students as an artist, as you mentioned earlier, I did a short film and these other things. And I thought, well, it's time to do a game. Yeah. <laughs> Why not take a shot at a game? So uh, I started out simple. It's not going to be a console game. It's going to be a mobile game. And it's going to be in the genre that they call casual Hyper-casual. So it's kind of a, um, uh, I don't want to say a mindless game. There's, there, there, there are uh, objectives to it, but it's one of these games that you'll play and hopefully get addicted to while you're at on the subway or yeah. at the doctor's office or what have you. And the title is called Bull Bros. B-U-L-L-B-R-O-S. <laughs> Bull Bros. And it's all about breaking stuff. So you're breaking dishes and exploding. You're just breaking stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds cool as long as there's not a. I was with games. I always laugh because then, if I ever get a game, sometime I'll play it. Mm. I'm one that I want to take the the long route. But now you know you can. Oh, I can just pay twenty bucks and get all this stuff and just right, beat it right. in a day. Yeah. And you're like yeah, in app. Well, yeah. that's kind of 
pointless. Like yeah. the whole point is to go through the game. But. Go through it. Yeah, you have to build in all. There's there's sort of gaming sort of frameworks that people use, and I've employed a couple in here in terms of strategies and yeah. components and. Uh, there is some in-app purchasing, but the focus on mine is I just know kids like to break things. <laughs> and so uh, it's all about, again, breaking and blowing stuff up. Yeah. So it's kind of goofy, but uh, really the, the reason I did this game was to learn the software and learn about game mechanics and strategy. I don't teach gaming per se. I teach more UX and UI, but I deal with so many gaming students it sort of intrigued yeah. me and I thought I would just take a shot at it. When you get it figured out, you can come over to the <laughs> architecture industry and we can well, model their yeah. building and they can go in and demo a wall well, and see I, what it's going to look you, like. And <laughs> one of the hot trends in the last, again, I'd say decade, but has been the, the term gamification, right? Where yeah. people are trying to apply gaming strategies to non-game uh, initiatives yep. to get more engagement, more performance. Yeah. So Doing that in yeah, 3D design yeah. is... And the virtual reality, that's exactly what it right. is. It's getting people to engage before you mm -hmm. spend all this money to build it. Right. And retain them. That's the yeah. thing. Yeah, you retain them. Get them to come back and stay engaged. Well, whether that be, you know, your LinkedIn profile, what was it, like 62% increase in your profile being like when they put the little, when it first started, mm -hmm. you know, they got to how complete right, is right. your profile. Like, have you put your name in, an email address, what your Facebook mm -hmm. You know, where you can be contacted there, where all your degrees, like that increased content, like well over 60 plus percent right. mm -hmm. just by getting there and, and having that. But then now you go to Fortnite where the game is free mm -hmm. and everything is how you yeah. walk through the game, the more credits, the more time you spend in it, the more individuals that, you know, that's what my, my son just, I mean, Fortnite One has come to an end. Now they've recreated it. They shut it down. The asteroid or whatever hit the thing, and it went black, and people completely panicked. But now they have to work their way back through right. to get all their skins back, and you know, put the dollars in to get the new skin, oh, yeah. or they have to play some more, and you know, have to have more kills. Oh yeah, and that's a cash cow for Epic Games. That was a real find. So well, it's amazing to yeah. me to like looking at going back and and. You know, Dave, that we we started making iPhone apps when the iPhone app, you know, when the iPhone first started, and in, and we we created we were looking at business systems, and mm -hmm. um, I think our first app was an Advent app. We we it, we launched in October with our first app. It was a well designed Advent calendar where mm -hmm. we used a local digital artist, and he created this barn scene, and you, mm -hmm. you interact with each day, and it opened. You know, you I clicked the window, that. and it opened up, and there's a you click the song notes, and it mm -hmm. plays the it plays the Christmas song of the day, and it had a recipe of the day, and everyone had a unique video inside of it, and you go through it. But then, you know, that's the first Christmas. That everybody gets their iPhones. And mm -hmm. we're like, oh, this is going to be cool. You know, the, the app that won, and the, that took home the best prize, one point whatever million dollars, I think it was like 1.25 million on Christmas mm -hmm. Day was iFart Mobile. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Cookie clicker. Yeah. yeah. It was just, it was entertainment. It was like, we just want to be, you know disconnected. Yeah. You can make your own and you can share it with your friends yeah. and, and, and that's how it, how it, it started. But, but looking at Fortnite today going, wow, it took that long for the gaming industry to go, I'm not going to have you pay $60 for this 
disc that you put in or the $60 for the download, you can get this game for free, mm-hmm. and we're going to make billions right. because of that gamification. Right, right. You're right. It's yeah. amazing. It's just different, uh, again, strategies on r- revenue generation, right? So the freemium, they call it the freemium model, where you give it away free, but you want to upgrade to a premium model or do in-app purchases to get those weapons or whatever they might be. Yeah. Where's architecture taking that? Freemium buildings? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm. it's not really – architects are notoriously bad for – <laughs> being on the cutting edge of stuff. <laughs> we'll do some technology and we'll do cool design, but when it comes to actually the products we use, because really what it's happening is SketchUp and it's the it's the person that can do it at their I can design my own house. And you're like, okay, well, you know, I've always thought about well, how can we do that as architects to get them to lay it out and then we'll help them actually understand the space. Cause a lot of people that do it on their own, they don't understand the space. They're just copying. Copy yeah. and paste, right? You're not really understanding the experience of the space or how it's, how you're going to use it, how you're going to function in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Not So Big House is a great book if you haven't read that. Um, Suzanne Sanka, she it's a design the house. You don't need a people come in. I want this big mansion. I want this room and that room. And she's like, no, no, this is what you want. This is how you live, right? You live in twenty percent of your house. Why do you want to build a house that's bigger than yeah. what you're living in currently? We can just redesign this and make it more efficient and fit your lifestyle better. And so there's a lot of that in architecture, and I'd like to see that come into where we can do kind of the gamification, bring people mm-hmm. in with the VR, and then they kind of walk us through a day in their life, in their existing space, and we can see mm-hmm. how we can make changes and make it better functional. Mm-hmm. Man, we are uh, well into an hour plus here on this conversation. I'd like to keep it going, but uh, we're going to keep it easy for the listeners here, and we're going to go ahead and wrap up today. Uh, Maybe we can have Dave back on uh, in the near future to find out uh, what's going on at Savannah College of Art and Design, how the game's going. Yeah, I think if we do number number two, we got to go to Savannah and do it there. Yeah, we'll do it from there. Remote. Yeah, do it remote. (laughs) So, Dave, as we wrap up here, how can, you know, we want to promote you and, and all that you do. How can listeners connect with you and any of the organizations that uh, you're affiliated with? Uh, the best place is I've got two websites. One is nettemple.net. That's N-E-T-T-E-M-P-L-E, two T's. And uh, it's, it's sort of a running blog. It's got some of um, my sort of it's more student driven, and the other one, the other one, my personal website is David Edwin Myers. It's David and E D W I N, and Myers, of course, is M E Y E R S dot com, and that's more about my work and uh, philosophies about the industry side versus the academic side. So those two places, and of course, musicpacks.com if you want to go there. Excellent. Well, we thank you for coming in to the Extension Studio, meeting us at at 530 on Main to discuss uh, how all digital, how all traditional, and how all that is impacting the end consumer in their experiences in space and online. So, Mike, you got anything to wrap up with today? I appreciate your time and great meeting you today. Thanks. Great to be here. All right. Thanks, listeners. Like uh, like the podcast, share the podcast, send us notes, if you will. Uh, appreciate you taking the time to listen to the At 530 on Main podcast. Until next time. Thanks again for tuning into this episode of At 530 on Main, hosted by Sean Collins and Mike Davis. 
Please leave us a review and share your thoughts on today's episode. Let us know how you've been inspired or what you would like to hear on future episodes. And if you've enjoyed the conversation, help us spread the word. Share us on your social channels. Message a friend. Rate the podcast. Without you, this experience would not be possible.